Yes, hello, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave. This is episode number three. I am Hal Schwartz, and I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, what's going on? Well, in Bruce Land, we have a lot going on, that's for sure. It uh, is true. You know, we start off with the uh, with the new archive release, the 102399, that I believe we're both quite familiar with at this point, after we wrote the, the review for Backstreet's. Well, I was quite familiar with it because I lived it. <laughs> And I mixed and I mix an IEM recording of it. Does that count? That does um, count. You actually spent more time with it, I'm sure, than I did. Uh, probably so. Uh, and Bruce is doing a bit of a publicity tour, uh, media blitz for the for the Western Stars film. Yep. So there, and, there, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So there's no shortage of current topics to talk about before we get to our more archival topic. Yes. And I'm going to be seeing the movie Saturday night. When are you going to be seeing it? The same night, Saturday night. So we'll have a chance to talk about that in the future, although we're cognizant of spoilers and not everyone's going to get a chance to see it in the first week. So we're still figuring out how we're going to handle it. Now, turning to the 1023 bootleg release from last Friday, this was one I was really excited about. It was a show I was at. It was one of my favorite shows of the reunion tour. And I do have to say, Flynn, going back to our conversation from episode two, you were talking about how tape bias plays into things. Recording bias. Recording bias. Recording yeah. quality bias, I guess, oh. is a specific okay. term. You had cited Chicago, which they had previously released, as a show that people hadn't had a chance to listen to, and when it was released in better quality, that people reevaluated. And I think that is true. But what I will say is the October 23rd show from the Staples Center, which is a show we've long had, you yourself did a stellar mix of it. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. This show... Uh, granted, I am a little biased because I was there, but I think this was the pretty universal opinion. Just listening to this show, it blows the Chicago show out of the water. <laughs> well, I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. My point when I was talking about recording bias regarding Chicago was just that it never got any respect until I got that official release. Getting lost, getting this LA 99 show, we had it in excellent quality. As you said, I did a mix of it. Prodigal Son did a mix of it. Let's be honest, it, compared to what they were able to do with multitrack, our IEM audience mixes were crap. And there's no denying that it was a great show. It was This was a tremendous show. And it just goes to show how great the reunion tour really was, because I don't even think, I, 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 it's not that I don't think, I know this is not one of my top five shows on that tour. I mean, this is, especially listening to it now 20 years later, it was a tremendous, tremendous night. Now, one uh, other thing. I, uh, go ahead. Well, yeah. When you when you hear it, when you hear everything mixed properly, it really does. Everything's going to sound great, but this one, there is a, an extra oomph in there. Now, you and I wrote the review for Backstreets of this release, and people can go check it out on Backstreets.com and see some of our extended thoughts about this show. But I will say, I mean, for me, when I'm listening to Incident, and this was the first time I ever saw Incident live. The performance is great, and the sound is stellar. I mean, it just jumps out at you. I, I I just love it. I really love it. I know there were some complaints online. I don't really agree with them. That pe some well, people felt that what were, the what were the complaints? Some people felt that the mix didn't have enough audience ambiance on some of the tracks. 
I don't, and I am someone who likes a lot of audience ambiance on my uh, live shows, but I don't know that it's true. And to the extent that it is true, I think circumstances in the building, this was the opening run of, at Staples. And as we know, Bruce did not enjoy himself there to the point that this was the last show he ever played at Staples Center. For the last 20 years, he's elected to play elsewhere. And the sound in the building, in particular that first week it was adjusted afterwards, was really bad. So I think that that may be contributing to why they can't have a lot of audience ambiance in the middle of the songs, because it may screw up the actual mix itself. That's interesting. That that probably probably played a ma- major role in that. I don't know what else would. My feeling about people who want more audience noise is I got three terabytes of audience recording sitting here on a hard drive. You want audience? You want audience ambiance? I got your audience ambiance right here. All right, right here. Uh, as I said, I'm really more in the middle because I I do want to feel what the arena. This was a show I was at, and the crowd was very into the show, and I do want to hear the crowd as it stood on that evening. You know, we you and I reference a lot the July first, two thousand. Ironically, also from the reunion tour, the final show of the tour, which was the first archive release from that tour. Atlantic City that night, there was a crowd interaction that was very, very special that is not fully reflected on the official archive release. Now, to me, that is something I would, if in my perfect world, would have there. Yeah, I agree with you. That was a that was a pretty amazing moment, and it wasn't it wasn't fully captured on the recording. Sometimes the complaints do go a little overboard, I think, and people do need to understand that these are being mixed as official bootlegs, and they're not Sony live albums. Right. These are monthly releases. I mean, we're getting a full three-hour show for $13. I mean, sure, you want it to be the best it can be, but there are limits. I mean, how much time is he going to, can he really spend to do this every month? And for what they are, I think they sound great. And I think this one really does sound great. It's a very enjoyable listen. And again, to get Backstreet's a little plug, and we do appreciate them allowing us to write the review. Anyone who wants to read our extended thoughts on the show can go to Backstreet's.com, and it's there. And while you're on the Backstreet's news page, you can also read about Bruce basically saying he's going to be touring next year in 2020. Yeah, and in fact, he that's another piece of news from this past week. Bruce was in London at the London Film Festival uh, showing Western stars, and he did confirm on the Graham Norton show that he would be recording an album with the E Street Band next month, and also that he would be touring in 2020. I'm not sure, actually, that that made the air, but Backstreet's reported that, that it was said during one of the segments that was cut out. Okay, well, that makes total sense. He has made references to returning to his day job soon anyway, so... Uh, it's not ex- hearing him confirm it is cool, but it's we're still kind of in. We'll wait until we until we see the list of dates from Shorefire. Yes. Well, I think I speak for everyone. I'm sure in the Springsteen universe, though, that that is very exciting news. It is exciting. It is exciting. So should we get to tonight's topic? Uh, sure. Yes, we can. Well, let's set the t- table for everyone. Tonight's topic is called Springsteen in the Studio, 1982 to 84. We're going and- so formal this week. Yes, this is a very serious topic if you really think about it, just because of the magnitude of what was going on during those years. I'm not sure about the magnitude of during those years, but the the after effects of, of those sessions certainly changed a lot of our lives, especially Bruce's. It would be interesting to, of course, hear Bruce's perspective on this, what he knew when they were doing it. But the the number of songs that were recorded, which we know from the logs between Nebraska and Born in the USA, what was it? Uh, it was over 80, right? Yes, I believe the count was around 80 
eight songs or so. I did a count of it the other night. Uh, 87 songs recorded with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. That's It's incredible if you really think about it. Obviously, 12 of those songs become Born in the USA, which is the biggest album of his career by far, as we all know. Born in the USA has sold over 30 million copies worldwide, I believe is the current number. And quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And and then separately, Nebraska comes out of tangentially out of these sessions. And I think, you know, that's probably where we should start. That after the River Tour, Bruce is sitting at home January 2nd, 1983. And we talked about this a little in the last show because you saw the TIAC recorder at the museum, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. And so I, and, and I thought back to that to that day in, in January of 82 where those 14 songs were, were mixed down. Yeah, we talked about in the last episode that that's just, I mean, a big goosebumps moment to think about Bruce sitting in that room in Atlantic City and Nebraska. They were all born on that day there, you know, and then he carried that tape around for for months before they settled on releasing what was intended to be demos. All right. Well, can we cut through some of the mythology first? Uh, January 3rd, 82, he did not sit down and record four tracks of 14 songs plus alternate mixes. They were written from the end of the tour, end of the river tour. So that'll be second half of September through the end of December. So that's when he was doing the writing process. And and I believe they had to do some recording. They didn't go through 60 songs in one day. I'm just, my point is that they Wait, mixed what it do you down. Mean, six, what do you mean 60 songs? You mean 60 well, tracks? Right. There were 14 songs. Each song had four tracks. So we're talking 14 times four. That's obviously 56. So that's probably the day they just mixed everything down. That's fair enough. Obviously, we know there's a set of songs that, whether they were recorded that day or mixed down on that day, that, I mean, this is January 2nd, 1983, is an important day. Even Born in the USA is recorded on that day. Yes. Uh, on that day, we ha- he, uh, he did nine songs, nine songs that would appear on Nebraska, plus USA, Downbound Train, Pink Cadillac, and Child Bride. Child Bride would, of course, be... be reworked significantly into working on the highway and he also had losing kind those were all re- all part of, the, of that one tape from that one day whether they were all recorded that day or mixed on that day it's it's still i mean it's incredible to think of we're almost 40 years later now atlantic city uh, born in the usa even pink cadillac i mean these are all songs that are are extremely significant and they all have their genesis on that day Yes, it's pretty amazing just to think about, as you said, that I like to think about it as from January 3rd, 82, when he was sitting there mixing Born in the USA, the acoustic version. And then you th- you look ahead to October 2nd, 1985, when he's playing that song in front of nearly 100,000 people at the L.A. Coliseum. And just those three and a half, well, I guess almost four years, I mean, it's such a transformation occurred. Uh, you said it best, life-changing for a lot of us, and especially Bruce. Bruce has remarked before, he didn't really have any money in the bank, especially after the lawsuit, until after the River Tour ended. And even then, I mean, from what he said, he wasn't, he certainly was <laughs> nowhere near uh, what he would have in the bank, you know, uh, five years later. Let's take this in sequence. Obviously, there's this Nebraska session in early January 1982 that takes place at his house. Then, according to the logs that Clinton Halen had in his book and Bruce Base, which is an amazing resource, by mid-January, they moved to the power station in the hit factory in New York. Yes, they did. Actually, 
ironically, the first song they recorded there was Cover Me. Did you realize that? I did not realize that. You're talking about the original version that made the album. Yes. That was the first song recorded in the studio in late January of 82 of, of, of these of the band sessions. One of the things I found fascinating when looking at the logs from mid-January to May in 1982, they actually recorded quite a number of the songs that would ultimately wind up on Born in the USA, even though they spent two years further recording tons and tons of material. Yes, it is pretty interesting to note that of the 12 songs that ended up on the Born in the USA album, that eight of them were from that those first four months of recording from January to May of 82. And you also get key songs that would emerge later on on other projects, Murder Incorporated on Greatest Hits, My Love, which is on tracks, both of which have become key songs in the live setting for the band in the reunion era. I mean, these were very fruitful sessions, and yet they continued for two years to try and search for additional material. Yes. And But one thing I do want to point out, though, the mythology or the legend of Nebraska is that he recorded those songs or mixed them down in 1982, in January of 82. He did them in multi-track so that he could demo to the band exactly what how they're going to proceed when they got into the studio, right? Right. Okay, so he has this, this, this tape of all the 14 songs, and yet the first song he, he records with the band is Cover Me. Can, well, you, that, expl- that can does, you explain that to me? That does somewhat burst the mythology, but he obviously, my guess is, having not been there, and I would have been very young if I was, is that he had a great batch of songs. Cover Me was written for uh, Donna Summer, uh, along with Protection. Yes. Well, it was like Cover Me and Protection. John Landau said, give her protection, you keep Cover Me. Right. They, so were they-, both, they were both recorded in early 82, early in the sessions in 82. Right, but so that they obviously felt from from what they had that Cover Me, he must have thought it was a really good song. Or, I mean, who's to say that he was recording in a sequence that said, wow, I'm going to start with the song I think is best. It's hard, it's hard to say. I get what you're saying, but I also want to add in that Glory Days wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't on the Nebraska tape, and it was one of the earlier songs done. It's just that the Electric Nebraska sessions, as as defined... Where they where they actually worked on the Nebraska material with the band, they weren't in, they didn't take place until late April of '82. I've always been a bit of a ne- electric Nebraska skeptic myself that there was some kind of mythical series of recordings of electric Nebraska and it it just didn't work. And then he turned to the tape and you know fans have been waiting. Are they going to put out electric Nebraska? And we know from the logs now, certainly a number, were all the songs recorded by the band at, the, at that point? I mean, a number of them were at the very minimum. I think well, eight, eight of the 10 on Nebraska were recorded with the E Street Band in the studio uh, in April and May of 82. But now, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, what's interesting to me is that State Trooper is not one of them. And I always, I always found that to be quite, quite well, unexpected. I expected that one to be one of the highlights in the studio. And there's no there's no log entry of State Trooper ever being recorded with the band. Well, and listening to the version of State Trooper on Nebraska, you would think that that would be a band-friendly song. So who knows? Bruce didn't cover this in great detail in his biography. You know, unless he does a book or some kind of project where he actually takes people through his thought process, which I doubt is ever going to happen in some of these major sessions that he's done over the years, we may not be able to answer these questions. What we know is that at some point, they obviously felt 
the cassette that he was carrying around contained good material and they decided to put it out. I think it was a very unexpected move at the time because, and I remember this because I was awaiting the next album. I was already a fan from the river. People were expecting just big, big rock album from Bruce at that point, you know, and, and suddenly they're pivoting to Nebraska. Well, let me talk about your, your skepticism of electric Nebraska. I do believe that if it ever comes out that there's going to be a lot of fans going, what for this, we waited 30 some odd years or 40 some odd years, because really there's only about four songs on Nebraska that would really work, or at least would really be interesting with the E Street Band. Obviously Atlantic City, you know, he's been playing that in live since since early in the USA tour. I uh, also got to put Johnny 99, Open All Night, and as I said, State Trooper, which apparently was not recorded at the time. So well, I... So I think you're going to have like this, you know, highway patrolmen and used cars and mansion on the hill that are not going to be that much different than what we heard on on the tour on the eighty four eighty five tour. I would agree with that, and and certainly when they do a Born in the USA box, and I would hope they do a combined Nebraska Born in the USA box where they do both projects in tandem because they're so closely tied together. I but agree hundred percent. You're right. It, people are going to be a little surprised and, and maybe that's going to be why they're a little reluctant to put out that Nebraska stuff, because ultimately when it comes out, it's not going to be this kind of mythical material. What we know is, and I think what's important to say, Nebraska stands on its own, which now that I think about it, perhaps cuts against our wish that they should do a combined Nebraska and born in the USA box. I still believe that even if they re- released a Nebraska box or an, or an expanded Nebraska edition, that at least they would go with the or use and release those full band sessions. Even if, you know, even if they would be a letdown, I think it is important to hear. As we said on one of the previous installments, Bruce has been reluctant in the past to put out a lot of alternates. And this really seems to be the holy grail of alternates. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. Now, here's a here's another question for you, mm-hmm. or at least part of my fascination with Electric Nebraska was not necessarily the material that was on Nebraska, but the, some of the stuff that was recorded with the band at the same time. And we haven't heard a lot of that stuff yet. I mean, I'm talking about A Gun in Every Home, On the Prowl, Robert Ford, William Davis. These, these just the titles, they have a a certain alert to them of a certain darkness. Yeah, I find those titles very evocative. Now, maybe it's because we haven't heard those songs, but to me, there's a real mythic feel to some of those titles. But it's funny because I I feel, I hear something like A Gun in Every Home, and I remember there was another rumor title called Whispers and Screams, and I I gravitated toward the uh, paranoid, a paranoia. Yeah, that urban paranoia, like add that to Murder Incorporated, that that's what drew it to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. And Murder Incorporated, of course, is uh, recorded in this set of sessions as well. So they they would potentially seem to be tied together. Hopefully one day we're going to get to hear those songs. We'll be able to judge them for ourselves. Yes, that is definitely the goal. So they're in the in the studio in New York. It's now January 82 to, to May 82, as cited by the logs. They record this amazing batch of songs that I think any artist would probably kill for. He yielded uh, on quite a number of top 10 singles just in that set of sessions alone. Then, f- for some reason, they stop recording in May of 82, and he takes a long break. And well, the next, yeah. Well, Hal, it's not just for some reason. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> That's when it was in late May, May of 82 was when they said, OK, this full band Nebraska stuff's not working. Let's put it out from the tape. 
So, right. so it was late 82, late May 82, they, they said, we're going to go forward. We're trying to put this, these, these 10 songs on it out as an album in and of itself. And so for better, or for worse, that was such a, a laborious and such a technically challenging job that they had to, that they, Bruce devoted all his time to that for the rest of, almost for the rest of the year. See, I, I actually never fully understood that just because, I mean, obviously we know the cassette, everyone knows the tales, the cassette was carried around. They had a real hard time mastering it, especially for vinyl, but was like Bruce sitting in the, the, the facility trying to get the cassette onto vinyl himself. That part of the story doesn't really make total sense to me. So what you're saying is that if Toby Scott and the other engineers were the ones who were really working on it, yeah, why did yeah, Bruce? Why did why did Bruce not continue working with the band? Yeah, perhaps maybe he, it was as simple as Toby Scott and those guys weren't available, so they they couldn't really record at the time. That may be what was going on. Oh well, there you go. I mean, if Toby Scott was spending his time working on getting this tape to sound good as a vinyl, then yeah, they you're missing a key a key personnel. Uh, for recording with the E Street Band. But I think it's also important to point out, I mean, Bruce spends much of the summer playing in clubs. That's one of the most famous club tours that he's ever done, the 82 Jersey Shore Tour. So, I mean, he clearly had some free time. The way I looked at it, the way I kind of perceive it is that he spent all his, or he spent a lot of time holed up with the Nebraska material in, in some fashion whether it was in, with Toby Scott in some engineering suite or, or re-recording the album as, as he did once, at least once, that he had to, he had to get out. He had to, be, he had to go out and be social and, and rock, uh, most importantly. So I think that's what led him to uh, that bar tour of 82. See, I mean, the reason I find it interesting is because we know at the time Columbia would have wanted a rock record delivered. They obviously took Nebraska, they put it out. It was a real artistic triumph. Nobody is denying that, but it was nobody's idea of a big commercial hit. I mean, it was acoustic uh, at a time well, when, yeah. Well, I think when they when they first said to Sony or Columbia or CBS, however, whatever they were at the time, that we say we want to release this acoustic record from the biggest rock, one of the biggest rock stars on the planet, but we also want you to know that we have a full scale rock album coming soon thereafter. So I think Sony or Columbia they were able to you know grant Bruce this artistic chance with the with this acoustic material and but so but they knew that from the from those spring of eighty two sessions with the band that they had a pretty good rock album coming at some point. Oh, for sure. And they had the evidence of that because they had all these amazing songs that had been recorded in the first sessions that they did for what became Born in the USA. But still, I, it, it's just interesting to work through all this stuff. It is interesting. And, you know, and I don't think Bruce totally sat on his hands if he wasn't trying to get Nebraska onto vinyl the second half of 82. I, I would imagine he was still writing and when he had the chance. I mean, he was so prolific during that period. I can't imagine it just stopped. So he kept he kept writing, I'm sure. So Nebraska's released commercially in the United States on September 20th, 1982. Of course, as we know, Bruce decides not to tour for the record and instead heads west where he now sets up a home studio in his house in Los Angeles and he starts recording a whole new batch of songs. Yes, this is this batch of songs would become known as the Hollywood Hills Garage Recordings. Yes, and many of the songs recorded during those so-called Hollywood Hills sessions 
ultimately are released on a bootleg series called The Lost Masters, which enabled everyone to hear these songs for the first time. To me, this is always born a sort of like a cousin to the Nebraska Sessions. Well, first off, I, we need to back up a little bit and, and, and say that Johnny Bye Bye and Shut Out the Light were actually from those sessions. So we were able to get something of a feel, if, if only minimal, just from those two songs. And second of all, this is absolutely, this is the, this batch of songs is the bridge between Nebraska and Born in the USA, both, both lyrically or thematically and musically, because these are songs that they recorded with a drum machine, some synthesizers, and a little bit of, uh, a little bit of guitar, not a lot, but just some. So they were, they were not quite the minimalism of Nebraska, but they weren't quite full band from the Born in the USA. And there are some really remarkable songs from these sessions that we've heard. I mean, you cite the two that were released, Shut Out the Light in particular, which, you know, I think is just stunning. But there's also songs that were never released, at least not yet, like The Klansman, Unsatisfied Heart. I mean, these songs are really, from a from a writing perspective, up there with some of Bruce's best work. And I again, I agree with you 100%. And I really think that, that Lost Masters that you referenced, uh, disc 16, it was like, it was 19 disc set. So disc 16 was actually pretty much was an album, a solid album that he recorded during that time. And it was actually one of the ideas that Bruce had per, I believe it was per Dave Marsh's Glory Days book, is that he considered putting these songs out as a separate album as a follow-up to, to Nebraska. Really? Which, I, I don't remember reading that. It didn't. It didn't go very far. I believe that that is referenced on Bruce Space somewhere. Well, I, I will say this, and this goes back to what we were saying about the label. I think heads would have exploded at the label if that was what he decided to ultimately do. Well, as I said, um, he gave consideration to it, but it never went too much too much beyond that. Uh, but there was definitely a I would consider a strong album worth of material there. So by April of '83 he will actually have had three albums worth of material if we start back to to, to the January of 82 in Nebraska. Uh, one of the things I'll say, I was just thinking about this today, about the Klansman. I mean, think about if he, if he re-recorded that or if he issued the original recording today. I mean, it, it would be still so topical 35 years later. It's, it's just, it's crazy to think about. It really is. And that's one of the darker songs on there. And I got to say, I listened to it the other night and it it kind of got my blood roiling. I mean, I know Bruce doesn't feel that way, but to know that people do still 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 angers me. Well, and, and let's just say for anyone who hasn't heard it, it is a song about a young man being indoctrinated into the Klan. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And there's a little bit of, of Dixie in there that kind of gets that kind of drives me nuts a little bit, to be honest. And, you know. It drives me nuts in a way that, uh, as Bruce intended it to. Yeah, I mean, there's the artist putting out a perspective that he's he's intending to be provocative. There's no question about it. Right. Now, another thing I want to mention about this batch of songs is that even though you had songs like Klansman and Fugitive's Dream and Unsatisfied Heart, you had some fun stuff like Little Girl Like You and Delivery Man and seven tears that were all just, they were kind of fun. They were kind of bouncing and fun. Well, and let's not also forget Cynthia, which emerges from these sessions. Yes, it does. It's one of the songs that were recorded at this time by, by himself in that garage. 
did go with them back east to the to record with the E Street Band. So that's a perfect segue because now they move back east and they go back into the Hit Factory in May of 1983 and they start recording again. And again, they they record a solid album worth of material. And this is the time where, as you said, Cynthia comes back east, my hometown comes back east. Um, and what's I what I found really interesting was he kind of had a little rockabilly thing going on during that time that we hadn't heard since from small things he had tv movie pink cadillac and stand on it are all from uh, may and june of 83 man at the top is from that time period as well right no it's not it's from the fall of the fall oh. of 83 into early 84 okay so that comes later yes now throughout this entire process from what we know, they're trying to put together an album sequence for him to release. Yes, they are. There were at least three different track listings that, that we're aware of that they seriously started putting together or starting preparing to to release. Now, if you really think about it, it's pretty staggering. I mean, they're sitting on what these are smart people. I mean, Landau knows uh, people at, at Columbia know they're sitting on what clearly is a decent number of hit singles. And yet he's still recording. He he was still churning stuff out. He really was. Now I could we could definitely argue to make it to a certain extent that the best stuff was from early eighty was from the first part of eighty two, and then the May and June of eighty three stuff was still good, but not quite as good. And then there was a further de deterioration in the fall of eighty three into eighty four, except for that little song called "Dancing in the Dark." Right. Well, and and your what's backed up is, of course, they ultimately released twelve songs, and eight of them are, as we pointed out, from the original session. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, really, you think about it. You take those eight songs, then you add the four legendary outtakes: "Murder Inc.," "My Love Will Not Let You Down," "This Hard Land," and "Frankie." And you—that's a, a solid twelve al twelve song album, is it not? That's an album I think any artist would kill for. Right. And then he goes back a year later. He records another basically a, another album with the Easter band. You got none but the brave. You got Janie, don't you lose heart. Bobby Jean stand on it, you know, dozen dozen or so more. So this guy just he basically could have released four albums in those two years. Totally. And I, one of the things I'm not sure it looking at it in 2019, it's hard to conceive of this. But a, quite a number of the songs you just mentioned could have been major hits in 1984-85. I mean, Janie, Don't You Lose Heart, if that hadn't been a B-side and had been a single, especially as big as Bruce became, that would have likely been a hit. My Love uh, would have been a massive hit. I mean, Protection, I, the guy was literally turned into a hit machine suddenly. Yeah, it's pretty funny considering that up to that point, he had had, what, one top 10 song. But he was he was on he was on fire. Let's 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 be perfectly yeah, blunt. Yeah, here. no pun intended. I, and then beyond <laughs> beyond the obvious hits, the quality of the material it really is staggering if you think about it. I mean that I mean Sugarland and Shut Out the Light, which we've already mentioned, and The Klansman, which doesn't even appear from the studio logs that have been recorded by the band. Uh, Unsatisfied Heart does get a recording by the band, at least according to the logs. Uh, only one take. I mean, there's just so much material. You wonder when they were sitting there in the studio, like, how did they decide what they were going to do on what day? I mean, it really is mind boggling. It really is. Uh, something that we're going to do in a few minutes is we're going to try to put together, put together our own Born in the USA sequencing. And, you know, we only have about maybe 40 songs to work with, including the maybe 50 songs, if we include all the release stuff, as well as the 
circulating studio material. But Bruce and, and, and John and Toby, they, they had another like 30 or 40 songs. It, it just I can't imagine have being in their shoes and having to, to take these 80 songs and whittle it down to 12. Yeah, and with all that, the recording continues into the fall, as you noted a minute ago, where they do a whole nother set of sessions that last from September of 1983 to February 1984. Now, in these sessions, there's quite a number of songs we've never heard, but it just like at a certain point, you would have thought that just stop. And (laughs) I don't know if it was a compulsion or, or what, they just kept going. And then to top it all off, after all that, they're sitting there in early 1984 with this staggering mound of material. And Landau says to Bruce, you haven't got the lead track. I I can't imagine what he didn't hear. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that, you know, 30 some odd years later, all this stuff sounds so amazing to us. But at the time, he wasn't hearing it. And, you know, and I I don't blame Bruce. Um, His reaction was, you want to hit single, you write it. You know, but he did it. That night he wrote Dancing in the Dark, which became his biggest hit. That is one of the, you know, great stories that he tells. You know, he goes back after all this, they get into a huge fight. He's got, you know, a hundred songs by Bruce Bass's count. He's now being told he doesn't have the hit single he needs. And he he's furious and he goes back to his room. He was in a hotel, right? Yes. He goes back to his room and he he picks up an acoustic guitar and he says to himself, I get up in the morning and he goes, no, 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 I don't. I, that's not what I do. I get up in the evening and then he writes Dancing in the Dark. And that just completes the whole story about how staggering it is that this guy is just sitting there writing hit songs. Any one of these songs would be the pinnacle of another artist's career. And he has 40 of them. Yeah, he was, as I said, he was just amazingly prolific. It's When I see four albums between 82 and 84, I don't even include the... Um, this fall of 83 into early 84, even if it does include dancing in the dark, you know, I don't, as you said, there are a lot of songs we haven't heard yet, but I do feel that stuff like man at the top and rock away the days and car wash, just, they don't, they don't rock me like the other stuff does. You know, I'm looking at the list of what's been released and obviously you had seven hit songs on born in the USA. Uh, My love is on tracks that I truly believe that would have been a monster hit in 84, 85 protection. Now dancing in the dark comes out. Obviously it's the biggest hit of his career. Uh, It goes to number two. He stopped by Prince because when doves cry is number one, but had the timing been right and protection been released as a single, I see no way that's not a number one hit for Bruce in the mid eighties. At that point, you're, you're right. It would have been a major hit, but 80, you know, 84 was one of the, one of the, or if not the best years for pop music. So there was a lot of competition there. Yes, that's a whole separate discussion. But, <laughs> and you and I have had that before, but 1984 into 85, where you had Purple Rain, obviously you had Thriller, uh, then Madonna comes on the scene with Like a Virgin. It is the pinnacle of pop music, in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. And Bruce is right in the middle of it. He is right in the middle of it. I, w- I would... Um wager a bet i would wager that if gary u.s bonds had released jolie blonde as a single in in like july of 84 which was a duet between him and bruce it it would have been top 20 easy oh for sure because you look at the other songs that followed off of born in the usa jackson brown for america of course clarence and jackson have a major hit with your friend of mine everything surrounding bruce and anything that was in that sort of milieu just became huge in those years Yes, I 
you know, looking back, it's kind of amazing that my hometown was this was a top ten hit because that song, it's a great song. It's one of his important songs with a capital I and capital S, but musically it doesn't exactly set the world on fire. That is helped, of course, by Santa Claus being the B side. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. That uh, that would have only helped in sales. It would not have helped on the on on radio play. That is true, but sales back then were were an important singles. You know, were were big sellers back then. Ah, uh, yes, I, f- I forget what singles are. So, yeah, I think it's, back it, to my youth. It's hard to imagine in 2019, but it, they really were. Yes, I know, and you know, and we're very thankful for Bruce's Bruce's singles. I mean, they gave us Janie, Don't You Lose Heart, and Pink Cadillac, and Stand On It, and Johnny Bye Bye. So, you know, they were very they were incredibly important with uh, with our Bruce fandom at the time. Absolutely. And and you look at the songs that made up the B-sides. Again, those songs would have been the crown jewel for most other artists. I mean, Pink Cadillac, Chaney, Don't You Lose Heart. Of course, we've already mentioned Shut Out the Light. You also had Stand On It. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in the hits themselves, they just exhibit the depth of the album because you think Glory Days... It, it, and it just goes back to what our discussion about Landau. How did he not listen to Glory Days? He didn't say to himself, that's a lead single. I mean, Glory Days, is it would have been massive. Yes, it would have been. It would have been massive with or without Dancing in the Dark. But it certainly, that was the song of the summer of 85. <laughs> and whereas Dancing was the song of summer 84. So the guy really had knew how to write a summer hit. Yes, he did. And this is a very important album. In a minute, we're going to do our alternate universe selections. But I I, I think it's important to point out, especially for both of us who come along around that time. I mean, Born in the USA is like the perfect rock album, Uh, even though perhaps we would switch one song for another because he did have, as we're pointing out here, you know, 40 or 50 viable songs at the minimum. But the album he releases is incredibly meaningful to me. I, it's incredibly meaningful for you, I know, too. Absolutely. It's the this is the album that got me into Bruce. If it if it wasn't for Born in the USA, I'm not sitting here right now. Yeah, I mean, I was a fan already prior to that, but I was young and and Born in the USA. You're, old, you're older than me. Yes, that is true. Let's not point that out. <laughs> okay. Yes, you're older than me, so I mean, you know, you were <clears throat> years old when it came out, so. I was you know, uh, it, I was sixteen. Well, I actually hadn't I turned. I was going to say your age, man. It, but it's go fine. ahead. It's fine. I I I I actually hadn't turned sixteen yet when Born in the USA came out. I was fifteen years old on the day it came out. I remember it literally like it was yesterday because by then I I was actually a really big fan. By then I hadn't had a chance to see Bruce. That was not something my parents were going to let me do at that young age. But I really was a fan. And after Nebraska had come out, there was all these tales about this rock album that was coming because they did want people to know that. And then Dancing in the Dark was released. And and I remember being on the Miracle Mile on Long Island <laughs> in record world that when they opened the boxes after school, the day Born in the USA came out and I bought it on cassette. Oh, funny. That record store is not there anymore, by the way. It is not. No. <laughs> well, I don't have quite the same story, but it was certainly I was certainly affected tremendously by the songs i heard on the radio before i finally before i finally bought the album and sometime in 85 so that that summer especially well 84 into 85 
really 85 you're right was the summer of bruce I, it was all bruce all the time for me that summer although i don't know how that differentiates it from any summer now period but well i was gonna i was gonna interrupt you and say it was all bruce all the time for a lot of music fans uh all over the world so I mean, he he had he he became the one name celebrity bruce it was massive and to this day the album resonates now we may complain when he pulls it out and he's playing it uh, the full album shows it's not per I, I'm not in general and we're going to talk about this I'm sure in a later episode just in terms of the live shows I tend to not be a fan of full album shows to begin with and I think that Born in the USA as great as an album as it is because many of the songs have been played so many times over this past 35 year period it doesn't have the same power to play it straight through but uh just when i put that record on still to this day and listen to it just as a record it really it, it, it's very special it's ingrained in my dna which i believe is probably cliche but it's, it's oh so true i do hear when i listen to it i hear a great album it's i really do and i know we could you know, we could go back and forth for the 30 some up 35 years since it's been released and say, oh, he should have put X song instead of Y or this song instead of this other one. But it's really hard to quibble with it at all. Here's a great question as we get into our revelation of what our alternate universe picks would be. If let's say Glory Days had not been on the album, but my love had been on the album. We'd be and Glory Days hadn't been released, you know, for twenty years, or maybe it was never released. We'd all be clamoring for Glory Days now. That is the truth. Yes, it is. There's something about the the forbidden that is makes it something more attractive. Yeah, I think you and I both sort of expect that at some point there may be a Born in the USA anniversary tour, like he did with the River. Kind of hoping he avoids that. He does seem to be going through a very very much an artistic renaissance after Broadway. He says he's written the full E Street album and all that. So maybe that doesn't happen. Uh, we'll see down the road. But it, just as I say, the album itself, standing alone, just means a hell of a lot to me. Yes, it does. And I, again, it's it's in, it's part of my DNA at this point. And if there's one only one point I want to make about the album versus the shows is that the albums are separate. Yes. To me, Working on the Highway in Darlington County, those are fun songs on the album. But yes, my our over-familiarity with them from the various tours, yeah, they kind of took have lost some of their specialness. To me, those were always, I don't want to use the word lesser, but, and, and those were not singles, uh, you know, those songs to me don't resonate the same way something like A Glory Days does, or of course, Born in the USA, which, you know, is perhaps one of his greatest written tracks. <laughs> yes, it is. You're right. You're right. They are kind of, they don't hold the same resonance as USA and, and dancing and glory days. And with that in mind, let's get into it now. I mean, we've let's created, we've created our own, and we have to say we have not told each other any of the selections. So this is going to be totally fresh. I'm going to start and okay. we're going to give like an alternate universe. If we had been in the room with Bruce and he had asked us for a track listing for his seventh LP. And this is, we're going to proceed now. And this is what mine would have been. Okay. Now I'm going to make one, before you go, I'm going to make one prediction. Yes. We're going to have at least six songs the same. Really? Really? Boy, that's more than I thought, but okay. Don't give away your list until I've done until I've done mine. So, OK, so side A of my record, 
we're going to do it like we're back in 1984 and there's still vinyl. Although, actually, of course, there is plenty of vinyl today. Uh, but uh, side eight of my record would start with the same song that the eventual album did start with. And that's Born in the USA, as I just said a second ago. In my opinion, one of the best songs, if not the single best song that he's ever written. It is a song that he's going to be remembered for long after we're all gone. Following Born in the USA, I would have My Love Will Not Let You Down, which was released on tracks. I think this would have been a monster hit in 1984. That would be followed by the namesake for this podcast, None mm. But the Brave. Interesting. Okay. Side A would continue with the alternate Cover Me, Drop On Down and Cover Me, which was recorded later on in the sessions. Thematically similar, but a much more driving song with a tremendous Max Weinberg beat and a really, uh, a really uh, fiery guitar solo. Then, of course, and Flynn is going to know that I would have picked this. Uh, Side A would continue with Downbound Train, which is one of my favorite all-time songs. Uh, I, I love it. And then Side A would end with Shut Out the Light, which I think is a really, really important song from the time and a perfect bookend to Born in the USA. Okay. Actually, can I point out a little bit, little tidbit of cool information about Downbound Train? Yes, go right ahead. It was the only song done over the three different recording sessions. It was recorded for Nebraska. Right. It was recorded with the E Street Band in, in early 82. Mm-hmm. Then it went to he did a Hollywood Hills version of it. Oh, I did not. We we just haven't heard that version yet, but he did it according to the logs. Oh, that is interesting. Well, it was obviously a song that he felt a certain attraction to because it kept popping up and obviously winds up on the album. Yeah, it is a great song. So continue with continue with side two. Side two would be kick off with Murder Incorporated, which, again, is one of the great songs he's ever written at the time when. People heard it on bootlegs. It was like this mythic outtake. And of course, it was eventually released and is now played. And I will say every time it's played now, I don't care how many times I hear it. I get excited when that song starts. I'm with you, man. Uh, Murder would be followed by uh, Wages of Sin, which was from Tracks. Mm -hmm. That would be followed by Frankie. (laughs) Well, there's our six. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, don't. Uh, well, there may be more because the next. <laughs> this Go is on. Then the final part of my uh, side, second side, would be protection. Uh, I'm sure nobody's surprised by that, based on what I've said about protection during this show. Then followed by dancing the dark, because let's face it, you cannot cut the biggest hit of the man's career. Uh, from the record and then I would end the record originally I was going to end the record with Janie don't you lose heart which I (laughs) thought would be a perfect coda but I actually switched it up and I did end it with unsatisfied heart which is a beautiful song we've only heard the Hollywood Hills version and the logs do show it was recorded once by the band I really hope we get a chance to hear it at some point but I just thought that would be a nice way for the album to end and uh, that would be my alt universe born in the USA that is, I like it. I, you threw me through for a loop there with Unsatisfied Heart, I must admit. Really? Yeah, everything else I was kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. But that one, I was like, hmm, that's I, different. I thought it would be a really good closing track, much in the way of like Valentine's Day and, and Wreck on the Highway. To me, it, 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 it's got the same sort of feel to it. There's a dream in, in, in Unsatisfied Heart. 
I just thought that it would work there at the end of the record. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. All now, right, now, what about? Yeah, go ahead. I guess we we matched a little. Yes, just a little. Okay, okay go ahead. Side one. Born in the USA. Then I hit him back to back with Murder Incorporated. Wow, that's a good sequence. Downbound train. Mm-hmm. Protection. <laughs> yeah. Shut out the lights. County fair. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Uh, that's, a, like that's, a, that's a good side of music, I'll tell you that. I like my I like the segue between Shut Out the Light and, and County Fair. I thought that worked. I had had Shut Out the Light on the second side, but I didn't really like the song that followed, or at least I didn't like the way it sounded. So I had I had to move that one around. No, I like that a lot. Now I went with the bookends of Born in the USA and Shut Out the Light because of course those are sort of a match pairing, but uh, I like what you did there. All right, thank you. All right, side two, My Love Will Not Let You Down. And then this one, I might have some emotional, some I really favor the song, even though I know a lot of people don't, Cynthia. So there you go. Frankie, I would, you know, it's just an amazingly beautiful song, followed by Glory Days, Dancing in the Dark, and This Heartland. Oh, interesting. You and I are generally in in this. Is, we have similar feelings on a lot of the stuff, so I'm not surprised that we had that many tracks that match one another. And I would have liked to have found the spot for like this hard land, uh, which is just also a tremendous song. It just goes to show the tough task that they were dealing with, because look at all the so look at all the songs we named that they actually left out. Not only left out of the record weren't even b-sides i i'm thinking on some of these tracks they must have known they were so great could you know do you make protection a b-side i i would think not yeah it is interesting i i didn't i didn't write down your list but looking at mine only four songs ended up on the album where I, and then plus plus shut out the light is a b-side i had three plus shut out the light now of course a number of my songs later released on uh, either tracks or uh, or greatest hits, but uh, or, only or essential. I, yes, or essential. Yes, uh, but I only had three songs plus the B side from the record. You know, and again, I want to point out that's not like I'm knocking Born in the USA, which is an incredibly important album in my life. It's this is an interesting task just to demonstrate what they would have been facing. I mean, here as fans, you know, we're looking at all these songs we love, and you got to cut it down to twelve. I really gave it some thought. I know you gave it thought. It really a difficult task. And you wonder when they were sitting in, they had this incredible wealth of material. It just uh, would be really interesting to hear at some point with uh, Bruce a little bit more in depth, like what was going on during that time period. I don't know that we're going to get that, but uh, just really, again, amazing what he had accomplished in these couple of years. Well, if I remember correctly, he he pulled the band members for their favorite songs as well to to or for not their favorite favorites, but for inclusion on the album. So, I mean, he was definitely reaching for or asking for a lot of opinions from, you know, even outside of just him and um, him and John and, and Toby Scott. The other interesting thing, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, I wonder at the time he was in the middle of this massive tour and they probably would have done this today because they certainly did it, you know, with high hopes following Wrecking Ball and they did it with re working on a dream following Magic. The temptation to release a second album, you would have thought would have been uh, enormous. They were sitting on an entire second at the minimum hit album. 
at the minimum. Uh, and it's interesting you say that uh, because one of the Rolling Stone articles from basically when the album and tour were announced actually said that they were considering releasing a second album at the end of the tour. Do you not, you don't remember that? I don't remember that, but that, it makes total sense. I mean, oh, absolutely. It would have been, and it would have been humongous because it would have had murder and my love and Bruce mania just would have kept going. Oh, they would have had another sequence of hit singles to be sure. It would have been, it would have been amazing. Of course, by that point, you probably would have gotten close to, to Bruce backlash. I don't know, because the live album comes out, you didn't have Bruce Backlash. I mean, it was huge. Uh, you did in the, going into 87. Okay, well. I mean, there were those stories about there were just thousands of boxes unsold, but, you know, that was bound to happen with a big, you know, three CD set. At right, the well, that'll be a topic for another uh, episode. Yes, it would be. We, I mean, we, we I really think we've do, covered this one. Yeah, we do need to talk about the tour, and we do need to talk about the aftermath of the tour. But we'll, as you said, we'll save that for another episode. Yeah, the Born in the USA tour, that'll be an interesting topic to discuss at some point. Yes, it'll be it'll be fun. So that's our show. We're through our third episode, Flynn. It's pretty incredible. Yes, it is. Uh, it's been very exciting. I'm really, I'm really having fun with it. Yeah, I'm having a blast. So, and before we wrap up, a little bit of business to take care of. None but the bravest presentation of bull market entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And definitely feel free to give us five stars. Yes, that's five Western stars, if you're not keeping track. On the web, we're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. For Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.